Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and we're glad to have you back. Uh, at least, uh, I think that's appropriate to say for many of you. Maybe this is the first time for some of our listeners, so having people back is presumptuous. But anyway, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show, and it's great to have you with us. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been a professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor, and I've done some other things. And uh, I'm a member of the crew that constitutes the Pugcast. But I uh, have a crew, and the crew is here. We're, we're all together. So, uh, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both of those at several places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. All right. And now, Glenn. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay. Well, that's who we are. And uh, each week, one of us is responsible for the topic of the day, and it's my day. My turn. And I've decided to focus in on the subject of human scale. Human scale. Now, the term human scale often is applied to architecture. And uh, what's implied or what's uh, being referred to when uh, people talk about architecture and human scale is the fact that when buildings are well designed, people feel comfortable in them. They feel at home in them. They're scaled to the human form. Now, just think about it this way. You know, we're sitting in a pub right now. This pub is not scaled to a mouse. <laughs> this is not a comfortable environment for a mouse. If a mouse came into this area, he might find a lot of food on the floor, but he'd scurry around and try to stay out of view and, and probably look for some place where he would feel at home, feel comfortable, a hole in the wall, just like when you think about, you know, Ben and Jerry, or not Ben and Jerry, I'm thinking of ice cream, I'm thinking about Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Tom and Jerry. So, you know, with Tom, you know, the cat, and then Jerry, the mouse, you know, the, the, you know how the shtick goes, you know, Tom tries to catch Jerry, and Jerry gets away and gets into his hole where he feels at home. <laughs> Human beings feel at home in certain places and feel... Like Ben and Jerry's. Right. That's <laughs> one of the places we That's feel right. at home. That's right. I do, too. I like Cherry's Garcia and Chunky Monkey. Those are my favorite flavors. But, but this whole idea is something that uh, seems very commonsensical but has fallen out of favor in the modern era. In, 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 in the modern world, architects are not so much interested in providing spaces in which people feel at home, comfortable, surrounded by beautiful things. They're interested in making statements, right? You know, so you have schools of architecture that more or less have contempt or express contempt for not only the human form, but for human beings. So an example would be brutalism. This is a school of architecture. It uh, celebrates ugliness. <laughs> Usually, uh, the buildings that are in the brutalist tradition uh, are concrete structures that are out of scale, that are intended to make human beings feel uncomfortable and small and vulnerable. So, for example, in Boston, you know, we have City Hall. So, Boston is a, is a city that is filled with beautiful architecture, but you can't say that for City Hall. City Hall is centered in, the, in the, you know, the center of town, not too far from the old state house, and not even too far from the current state house on Beacon Hill. Uh, and it, it really looks like an inverted temple 
it's kind of an Aztec temple with the top pointing down. So each successive floor gets broader as it goes up, and it's surrounded by a, a, a kind of concrete plaza that no one wants to be in. <laughs> so if you ever get out of the, you know, uh, out of the subway there and uh, go down the street, go down Tremont Street to get to City Hall, you'll notice this vast sort of concrete wilderness where no one sits. Where, where do people go? Where do people go? I mean, people, there are a lot of people in downtown Boston. Where do they go? Well, they go down to Faneuil Hall, which is just about two blocks mm. down, where you have buildings that were made in the 18th and 19th centuries that were designed for people. <laughs> <laughs> now, at the University of Wisconsin, the humanities building there was built during the 70s, probably. Um, and uh, the entire design was intended to make it difficult to get around. Yeah, yeah. What is, what is the deal with that? In this particular case, it was a practical consideration. They wanted to make it takeover proof in student demonstrations. <laughs> okay. So you, you can't actually go into the building on the first floor. You have to go up and enter, you know, sort of at, at, at the middle of the building, which is an old technique used in medieval castles right, right. Um, for defense. Right. And then you can't get from one side of the building to the other directly. There are no hallways that run the entire length. You have to leave and come back in to get into the other half of it. It's remarkable. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it belies its purpose. I mean, this is the humanities building, mm -hmm. which is not designed for human, be human access. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, but this is actually something that is a, a subject that uh, has a much broader uh, sort of range of application. When we think about human scale, I think, you know, when it comes to architecture, it's tremendously important. I, I think that there are a number of things that we can see in classical architecture that demonstrate that the human form was really at the center of their thinking when it came to the things that they made, sort of the ratios involved and so forth. But uh, in the modern era, the, uh, the, the sort of the, the understanding of, of, the, of the universe as being hostile and alien and altogether mm -hmm. scaled inhumanly has captured the imagination of a lot of people. And we, and we see it's, it, the effects of that all over the place, in education, uh, in government, and so forth. So this idea of human scale uh, is something at the heart, historically, of almost every, well, I, I would say every humane art. It is the, you know, when we talk about humane arts, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about human beings, right? Yeah. And uh, now, now uh, with regard to that, um, it doesn't mean that human beings are the physically largest thing around. What it means is that, the, that human beings have a significance in the order of things uh, and that uh, the things that we make ought to reflect that significance and so on and so forth. But anyway, I don't know if you guys have... I, uh, it was a really amusing story about the humanities building, but, but I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to throw in at this point. Yeah, I actually find myself thinking of European cities. Yeah. Paris is a city that is built on a human scale. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love Paris. Yeah. It yeah. Is, it's, a, it's a city that's made for walking. Yep. You go a little bit down the rail line and you get off at Versailles. Yeah. Versailles is not built on a human scale. Huh. <laughs> it is built simply... It, it, it is built on the scale of Louis XIV's ego. Gotcha, gotcha. Which... 
is the size of the great outdoors, which right. is the way the palace is. Right. Now, interestingly enough, I don't think London is built on a human scale. Huh. I would have expected London to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it really isn't. It doesn't have the same walkability. It doesn't have the same... Um, I mean, the Houses of Parliament are just vast. They're yeah, huge. It's yeah. just... And, and it just does not feel as user-friendly as Paris does. And they're very closed off. I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah. Is, is you, you can stand at the gate and look at the soldiers in front of the palace. I mean, right, it's, right. It's the, it, there is this right. de- detachment there um, as right. well. Um, but interestingly, I mean, you have, for example, uh, with, with cathedrals and stuff, which are obviously trying to go beyond the human scale because you're dealing with something transcendent. But even there... It's something that includes the human scale, right? And actually, right. It, it comes right into it. It's actually that's the that's the place right. in which which yeah. that that and and it's intended where it is not to human scale. It's intended to elevate the human. Yes, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. intended to make the human small. It's intended to lift them up. Whereas, yeah, whereas what what Chris is talking about, where you flip that, where the human scale is almost made transcendent. Um, the human itself is is lost. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I think is going on is a uh, inhuman kind of shift in our metaphysic. Yeah. So we're we uh, you know in, in in the modern world think of nature as hostile, you know, sort of completely hostile, uh, alien. And something that uh, is uh, out there for us to conquer, uh, whatever. Uh, now, there's been some uh, rethinking with regard to that, principally because of the ecologists and, and all the stuff that's going on with that. But uh, even those folks uh, have a kind of contempt for the human. Hmm. Um, the, the medieval view would look at the world quite differently. The the medieval and the classical views saw human beings as part of the, you know, order of things, the nature of things, but uh, served a kind of important, you know, purpose within that order. And uh, consequently, it wasn't utterly alien. There, There might be things that are sublime and outsized and not intended for human uh, habitation, but at the same time, there is in the order of things places for human beings. Uh, when you think about the cosmos in the, the old view, when we think about the vastness of that cosmos, uh, there was a place for man, you know, in the order of things. And in, 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 in that place, he had some significance, some dignity. But in the modern view, everything is utterly alien, and it's a it's an exercise of human will and power to make oneself significant. Mm-hmm. So you're not it's not so much a, a revelation of human significance as it is the assertion in the face of absurdity that we are significant, and then of course we die. <laughs> and this is why people like Camus think, well, you know, maybe we should just get it over with early and just kill ourselves. But uh, anyway, so, so that's kind of in the, uh, the background uh, in terms of where I want to take this. Where, where do I want to take this? I want to take us into the, into the field of, uh, or into the, to the realm of politics and human community. So we started off with architecture, things that we make, 
uh, to, to inhabit, to interact with each other in, uh, to shelter us. Um, you know, that includes everything from, a, you know, a, a house of parliament to a house, you know, and, and everything in between. Um, but when we think about political institutions, can those get too big? If, a, if, a, if we could be, you know, uh, well, you've probably seen these things. Like when you drive down the road, there's this enormous rocking chair in front of some place and you think, well, isn't that interesting? Uh, I, I would never put that in my house, uh, but it certainly catches my attention. Yeah. And the only thing that the only creature who could actually use that is someone the size of Goliath. You know, uh, when we think about uh, you know human institutions, can a country get too big? Can a city get too big? Um, now, you can also look at it the other way. Can a city be too small? Uh, can a country be too small? But I don't think we live in a world right now where that's a big problem. You know, we're not, we're not trying to grow out of the sort of min, min, miniature world into a you know, sort of healthy, full-sized world. We actually live in a world where our institutions dwarf us, make us feel insignificant and small, and reinforce that by, well, not being responsive to us. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of rail against the machine, so hmm. to speak, rage against the machine, because <laughs> the machine just doesn't ever recognize our, our, you know, our, our place in the order of things. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just, it just does its own thing. Yeah. What do you think about that? Hmm. When, when you go back to the ancient Greek polis, yeah, the hmm. Greeks believed that. Cities should not go above, I believe the number was somewhere around 10,000 people, because, I mean, even with the Greek amphitheaters, which are marvels of acoustics, mm -hmm. that's the maximum number of people that could be addressed by a speaker without amplification. Right, right. And you don't want a city that is so big that you can't talk to all of them at once. Right, right. Well, this brings up a passage in a, a book that I'm currently working my way through entitled The Breakdown of Nations by Leopold Kor. Now, uh, Leopold Kor is one of these uh, funky uh, theorists that uh, people in a particular discipline uh, are all aware of, but he's out of fashion. Hmm. Uh, and there can be different reasons why you're out of fashion. Sometimes you can be out of fashion because you're uncomfortably correct. <laughs> you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn found himself in that spot. He was out of favor because he made people who were powerful uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and how did he do that? By telling the truth. <laughs> but anyway, um, this idea, as you know, uh, Glenn, is, is an ancient one, and it was expressed really marvelously by Aristotle in politics. And so this uh, particular passage that's quoted in Kors' book, The Breakdown of Nations, is from politics. It's from chapter 7, uh, section 3. So let me read it. A state, then, only begins to exist when, is it, when it has attained a population sufficient for a good life in the political community. So you need to get to a certain size, Aristotle says. It's possible to be too small. Let me get back to him. He goes on to say, It may indeed if it somewhat exceed this number, be a greater state. But, as I was saying, there must be a limit. What should be the limit will be easily ascertained by experience. 
for both governors and governed have duties to perform. The special functions of a governor is uh, art, I should say, uh, to command and judge. But if the citizens of a state are to judge and to distribute offices according to merit, then they must know each other's character. Where they do not possess this knowledge, both the election to offices and the decisions of lawsuits will go wrong. Now, we, we would never experience anything like that, right? You know, <laughs> we would, we've, we've never seen that ever happen. Obviously, it's, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. Let me go back to Aristotle here. When the population is very large, they are manifestly settled at haphazard, which clearly ought not to be. Besides, in an overpopulous uh, state, foreigners and medics will readily acquire the rights of citizens. Now, we've never heard that happen here in the United States. You know. <laughs> For who will find them out? Clearly, then, the best limit of the population of a state is the largest number which suffices for the purpose of life and can be taken in at a single view. That line, taken in at a single view, I think is important. <laughs> so what, what Aristotle's saying is, okay, you need, to get, you need to get to a certain size. You need to you find you know, critical mass. You need to acquire critical mass to be uh, a city that can uh, or a community that can do the things that you want, you want your community to do and, and do them well. Uh, but for the citizens of such a community to be really capable of understanding their community, of being engaged in their, in their common life, uh, of actually being able to, to elect people that they know and actually recognize in the course of life, not just because they've seen them on a poster or watched them on television uh, so that they can have an understanding of the character of those people. Because, you know, we all know, you know, for example, Ellen's on television right now here in the pub. Okay, Ellen is a smiling lesbian who presents herself as, you know, a very enlightened and friendly person. But what have we learned about Ellen in the last couple of years? She is one of the nastiest people in entertainment. <laughs> People despise her who've worked for her. Now, the only reason we know that is because there is a, you know, sort of a press that celebrates the salacious and wants to sort of do that kind of thing to people. But if we actually knew Ellen for ourselves, we would know that already, right? But how could you possibly know her in a world like ours, where things are so out of scale and there is absolutely no possibility of actually ever meeting her unless you're in the studio audience or actually get to work for her on her show, which from the sound of it isn't a very pleasant experience. How, how would you do that? Well, you've you got to be in, an, uh, in, an, in, a, in a community that makes it feasible, makes it possible. What do you think about that? We have to remember Aristotle was working in the context of city-states. Uh, the thing about Greece is the geography really dictated a lot of what went on there. Greece is basically mountains and sea. Right. So you have city-states that develop, and you know, a city-state, by definition, is a city that controls the surrounding rural countryside. Mm -hmm. okay. They're isolated. They can't get over the mountains. It's very difficult to unite Greece. Mm -hmm. So Aristotle's thinking of a context in which the culture is really dominated by small polities. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to see what he would have to say if he were in an area with 
you know, planes or something like that. Well, he does reflect where, on that. Where you, could, where you could actually develop a larger level of polity. Well, he does re- reflect on that as he, when he contrasts the Persian, mm-hmm. okay. you know, the, the sort of your typical Persian with your typical Greek. One of the things he does in the politics and elsewhere is he outlines sort of, or he, he, he puts up for consideration three different kinds of people, the barbarian, the Greek, you know, polis dweller, and the Persian. And with the Persian, what you have is a servile person hmm. who de- defers to authority because he's afraid of getting his head chopped off all the time. Again, the question would be if he lived in an environment in which larger polities were possible, is that the only alternative? Well, yeah, let, let me continue. So then he presents <laughs> you with the barbarian. Mm-hmm. So the barbarian is at the opposite extreme. Thumos, spiritedness, mm-hmm. controls sort of the, the, the behavior of the barbarian and makes it difficult for that for, for barbarians to create the kind of cultural institutions that Aristotle celebrates. And in the middle, you have what you have with the Greek city-state dweller, a person who is, ha, has, possesses thumos, spiritedness, but at the same time has a kind of community spirit. Uh, uh, he's a person who knows that there are certain things that we can do together uh, that we can't accomplish on our own. And so you, you've, got, you've got the best of both. Now, physical environments, I think, are important. So one of the things that, that CORE talks about in the breakdown of nations is that uh, when we look at a place like Switzerland, which is just, you know, very much the, in the spirit of what you've just talked about, you've got uh, a kind of thing that happens there that um, you don't see in other places. So environment, physical environment, is important. It makes it easier to do what... Core and Aristotle are describing. But here's the thing. Where would you really rather live? Would you really rather live in Persia? Or with the barbarians in Germania? Or in a Greek city-state? Because the, according to Core, according to Aristotle, according uh, also to Nassim Taleb, remember Taleb yeah. who wrote The Black Swan, where you see creativity flourish is not in the empire, and it's not in the hinterlands of Germania. Where you see creativity flourish is in Venice. It's in Athens. It's in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in these places that are uh, smaller in scale. That's where we see the Mozarts. Well, and, then, and I think that's what you see. I mean, what you tend to happen in, so let's say, New York City, for example, something that you think, you know, expands into to this grand scale. People get lost in it. But you start to have the village, right? You start to have the, the east side, upper east side or lower east side, depending on. And they start to become communities that have to break from that larger being absorbed into the larger in right. order to, to create that, that scale mm-hmm. for something... Um, you know, um, creative and and human right. to to you know and, to to carve itself out. I mean, you think. I mean, I think you see that regularly in when the scale gets too large. Too large. Things you, things get things broken up into smaller bits. Smaller, smaller. Now the problem with a place like New York is the thing that the things that people tend to uh, collect around tend to be. Uh, Pretty weird. 
So if you think yeah. about the village, yeah. we're talking yeah. about a lot of homosexuals yeah. and a lot of uh, kind of, well, basically, you know, when you get into Manhattan, you know, it's, the, the story is different when you're in Queens or, you know, the Bronx or, or Staten Island. There you've got people who've grown up in New York and actually will probably die in New York and their parents did too. But you get to Manhattan, I mean, people from Iowa live in Manhattan. I mean, it's a place where yeah. kids who were maybe made fun of in high school because they were in drama club move to, you know yeah. what I'm saying? It's not really, Man it's not really a, made up of New Yorkers. It's made up of a bunch of discontents from other parts of the country, many, <laughs> much of that. I know that that's putting things in a pretty stark way. But I know New York. I know people from New York. <laughs> I, I know how it actually kind of works. And, uh, and You know, it's interesting that you should say that because my dad's from Brooklyn. Uh -huh. My mom's from Queens. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can tell you about the Bronx. Yeah. I, I, you know, there, there's a distinct accent yeah. in yeah. each of these areas. Right. And... You know, when you're watching Captain America, he's from Brooklyn and Spider-Man is from the Bronx. Okay. Uh, excuse me, Queens. Queens, Queens. right, yeah. Queens, right. And, but aside from maybe Harlem, right. there's nothing distinctive about Manhattan right. that mm -hmm. is specific to Manhattan. All of these other ones, you, there is a culture there. Right. But Manhattan doesn't seem to have the same, I never really considered that. Yeah. But except for a few neighborhoods, perhaps, Manhattan doesn't really have that same kind of, of yeah. Yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 my, yeah, my feel for Manhattan is uh, that it's a place for a lot of discontented people and for people who want to make a lot of money and people who are into certain kinds of performing art. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy my time in Manhattan. You, you know, if, if you listened to me and didn't know me, you might think I was just like, Someone who hated New York. You know, I, I walk around with a T-shirt with, uh, you know, instead of the heart. High skull and crossbones, New York. <laughs> that's right, that's, I actually, when I get down to New York, I yeah. enjoy myself. I, 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 now, I wouldn't right now because the place is like shut down like, uh, yeah. like a warehouse at three in the morning. But uh, when it's actually, actually the warehouse is in New York at three in the morning, it's not necessarily shut down. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about warehouses out here. So. But anyway. Uh, Getting back to kind of the heart of what I'm getting to, there's something about scale and our human nature. That, now, that's, that's almost like saying something uh, obscene to many modern people, to say human nature. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't want to think of human, uh, humans as having a nature because then, then we're talking about something that's fixed. And, 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 I they, think and they that, want to self-create. That's right. And I think that was my point with even even when we try, I mean, these cities grow to, to these, you know, this huge scale. Our human nature pulls us into these subgroups, mm -hmm. these, these smaller communities to somehow mm -hmm. capture what, what we're talking about here. Right. And, and yeah. so, yeah. so going back to the example Manhattan, I've got to think, I've thought of a couple of other places. You know, we mentioned the village. I mentioned uh, Harlem. Um, and even there, you've got to break that down into different parts. But you've got Chinatown, yep. you've got Little Italy, yep. uh, you've got things like that that are all these specific kinds of enclaves yeah. of where people who have some sort of common bond gather together. Yeah. Now, one of the things that makes those places so charming is the boundary that, uh, that defines them. 
or the boundaries that define them. But the thing that our current... But, but when you think about Manhattan, you don't think of Little Italy. You don't think right. of Chinatown. You think of, of downtown. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, when you get there and you walk around and you get a sense of the place, like, you know, you, you, you get, get what you're talking about. But even those places are uh, under siege. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we were to go to Boston, we could go to the North End, which was Boston's Little, little Italy. The place is completely overrun with a bunch of, you know, millennials and, you know, those folks who have basically priced out of the neighborhood all the old Italian families that were there for generations. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you get, I think it was like Prego or Regu spaghetti sauce. There, I remember seeing that there's this, there's this great uh, page on Facebook called Dirty Old Boston. <laughs> and uh, in that there's this, this uh, you know, television advertisement for spaghetti sauce. And there's this Italian mother in a, <laughs> in a flat, looks like, like a cold water flat, uh, in the north end of Boston, and she just opens up the window and calls out, Anthony! And Anthony's like three blocks away playing stickball with his buddies in the street. And he runs home, you know, and, and there's just this, this, uh, this apartment's just packed with his brothers and his sisters and his aunts and his uncles. You know what? That does not exist in Boston today. Yeah. That is, that is nostalgia. That is what used to be the case. You know what you got there now? You got some girl with pink hair who's a lesbian with her cats in the <laughs> apartment that Anthony's family used to live in. And she's a, a senior vice president at Prudential or something like that. That's what Boston is like today. And so is Manhattan. And what you've got to have, if you're going to have genuine community, is a sense of the, of the inside and the outside, okay, you're in, you're not in. If you were in the old, if you were, you know, back in the day, I was in, you know, in the North End in the 80s and stuff, like if you weren't Italian, they would just look at it and say, obviously you're just here for the restaurants. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't actually live here. It's like Greek town in Chicago. <laughs> sure, sure. But even those places are all under threat. Yeah. Because what we have today is it's all about movement and efficiency and choice and the boundaries that help to make a community what it is are all seen to be uh, retrograde, oppressive, what have you. Well, and I think it's... Go ahead, Glenn. You, you yeah, use. and I think that the culture has, by and large, lost any sense of history or tradition that is no longer considered part of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm tempted to say they're sort of like the guys on some of the reformed Facebook pages I see who want to get rid of all tradition, yeah. and it, yeah. it, it, unless it came from the Puritans. That's right. Yeah, and, and they don't realize that they're romanticists um, in a perverse form, and they're not, they're not acting out of their Christian faith at all. I mean, one of the things you see, I mean, the, the trend in history is, is um, after you develop this notion in, in Western thought uh, a move away from Christianity, the notion that the, the human being is basically um, the origin of everything that it is, um, even including um, its values, its meaning, its own nature, um, how we determine what to do with the, the world out there. Um, you start to see through the romantic um, movement um, this notion that nature is organic, right? And um, so, but, but all the institutions that grow up in it basically try to become prison houses that stifle us from our true freedom. And so convention, um, cities wrapped around true culture and 
and um, you know, long-standing institutions, um, marriage, family, um, larger family. I mean, I think this is one of the things you see gets broken down. It's sort of the core is the family, of course, and then as it builds out of that, um, as all of that breaks down, everything needs to be, be basically, um, we need to be liberated from. So we right. need to be liberated from everything, even the statues in front of the art museum that were meant to symbolize some kind of freedom and liberation. And so, yeah, when you have this kind of human being seen as basically nothing but a series of choices that determine their own life, fate, meaning, value, everything else, and anything that puts a, a limit on that has to go, and you put that into a group of people as large as Boston, then you have eradicated any possibility of legitimate community. Right. Well, I want to I bring this back to this idea of uh, the optimal size of a community. And in part, it talk, you know, we have to get into the, the matter of what kind of community are we talking about. So let's think about churches, since a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to this. Now, uh, we're probably familiar with the Dunbar number, right? I mean, the, anthrop the British anthropologist uh, Dunbar, who said that kind of... Uh, people are more or less wired to live in a community that's no larger than, say, 250 people. Hmm. In the sense that, basically, you can only, you know, it's between about 100 and, 100 and 250, that's kind of the, the, the range at which people can kind of take in a community at a glance. After that, then you're like, I think I saw that person once or twice at church uh, maybe six months ago, if, if you're talking about a megachurch. Yeah, you know, one of the things about megachurches that have have always made me uneasy is how artificial they are. Which what, what you do is you you you, you know, essentially what megachurches have gotten over is something they call the two hundred barrier. Yeah. So this is like a terrible thing, the two hundred barrier. It's it's this sort of in, this uh, this obstacle to becoming this enormous whatever. Yeah. Uh, and in order to get over that, you know, you have to restructure things so that things tend to be kind of organized, designed to reflect a kind of corporate mindset. And you go into a whole different kind of mode of, of relating to people. You go from being, you know, saints who are gathered to worship to customers, or uh, an audience to entertain. Well, I think that one right there is worth pausing on because I think that's what you usually hear is our kids love the vast amount of um, programs. <laughs> right. What are those programs? They're not community building. No, no, no. Very large, very they're, small they're, they're, levels of discipleship and, and, and the rest, but it you know, tends to be entertainment that keeps them engaged. Right, But right. it teaches them. Right. To, to kind of like Sesame Street. You know, when you think about Sesame Street, I'm all set. When you think about Sesame Street, you know, the big criticism about Sesame Street is, is no one ever learns anything on Sesame Street, you know, except maybe the count, you know, being able to imitate the count, you know, count, you know, who count, teaches you to count to three or whatever. One, two, three. <laughs> so I know, how to, I know how to imitate the count, but I didn't actually learn to count by listening to the count. Same thing with Cookie Monster or Oscar the Grouch or whatever. So you you have what's actually a um, diversion disguised as education. 
you know, how much education is really going on in Sesame Street? Well, that's what you have in a lot of children's programs in churches. You know, what's really going on here? Are we just trying to make the kids happy for a period of time so mom and dad can go upstairs and, you know, get their TED Talk experience from Pastor Superstar? I mean, that, that's really what, what yeah. you have in those places. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a big thing, and I, and I see it over and over again. And it, te- it teaches, you know, children that the, the basically spirituality is to be equated with entertainment. Right. And the minute that entertainment isn't suffice, all of a sudden it's, you know, if you find entertainment that engages you anywhere else, it's on the same spiritual level. And right. what you tend to see, I remember, uh, I remember my, my oldest once saying, he said, the church is trying so hard to make its music sound like the music that, you know, all my friends listen to, right. but it can't compete with it. No, so, there's no way it can. And it's, it's just like a, a hollow, cheap version of what, what we would see is the, is, is the better stuff for our age and generation. And so it doesn't say anything to them. And so in the attempt to pull them in to kind of give them a deeper spiritual message, they actually see it as the thin-veiled, superficial vehicle that it really is. And then sometimes our best kids go somewhere else to be challenged. Yeah. But this is all kind of, I think, part and parcel of this. What what are we trying to to be when we... When we establish a community, Glenn, you have something you want to say? Oh, I was just going to make the observation. Have you ever noticed that what contemporary means in terms of Christian music is stuff that's about thirty years out of date? Right, that's right. <laughs> it's um, uh, what if you really wanted to do contemporary, it would be rap. Right. Yeah, it'd it be would that. be uh, hip hop. It would be something like that. Mm-hmm. A, yeah, nobody's going to do that. Well, and we, probably we, we should do is we should. Uh, return to the permanent things, to foundational matters, and say, what are we up to anyway? And is there a Christian way to think about institutions? Is there a Christian way to think about optimal size when it comes to institutions? Or is bigger better for everything? So let's, let's think about it this way. Cancer. What is cancer? Cancer is uh, a disease that is uh, growth out of proportion. That's what it is. Certain part, you know, certain cells in your body uh, are are not, are growing too large, and they're not, uh, you know, they're not a part of a larger, healthy uh, phys- physiology, and so they end up killing you because they can't stop growing. So if we were to say, okay, you know, a one-cell organism uh, at a microscopic level is great. Uh, therefore, a one-cell organism at the size of a football field is that much better. <laughs> That's really the way we think about what you know communities when it comes to size. We don't think about them in terms of what are we trying to uh, celebrate when we think about the community, or what are, we, what are we trying to accomplish, or what is this community supposed to be? It's just well, it's bigger. That's the only thing that we have to, val- to measure value is size. If it's bigger, it's better. So New York, because it's bigger, is more powerful. It's more influential. Now, I'm going to get on a hobby horse of mine. <laughs> and as I, think no. about, <laughs> as I think about New York, there are a lot of uh, reformed people who think that Tim Keller is changing the world because he has a big church in New York. I've been to that church about half a dozen times. Let me tell you something. In terms of 
uh, its relationship to the larger sort of scene there in New York, it's nothing. I was in a, I was in a, a service uh, at Keller's Church, which contained maybe 2,000 people. As soon as we walked out the door, they, they, the entire community just disappeared into the, to the crowd. It was like, what happened? It was like magic. There were 2,000 people here, and now they're lost in 50,000 people. And you'd say, wow, you know, isn't it great that we've got this big presence in New York? Uh, we're making a difference. Well, you may, you've made some difference in some people's lives. And by the way, I wouldn't even take that at face value. A lot of the people in Keller's church went to churches in Tubunk, Iowa, you know, or wherever you're from, uh, and are kind of like lonely as they're pursuing their dreams on Broadway and want to get a, a little bit of home in New York. Well, it, it's, well it's, let me just, let me just yeah. finish this one thought, though, though, Tom. But what we have actually that's happened in the reform world is that Keller, and I don't, I don't, I don't think that he did this in, intentionally, but Keller used New York to change the reformed world. Hmm. The reformed world didn't use Keller to change New York. Keller used New York and the size and the brand of New York and the envy of many pastors hmm. who wanted to be him to change the reform world. So size can really skew things in really bad ways. Hmm. <laughs> I, well, I, th I thought you were going to say something in the middle of all that, so I was going to sort of leave it in to you, but... My, my attention deficit took over. <laughs> I lost okay. my train of thought. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I find interesting when you compare what we do when we are thinking about building churches and when you go to the Global South, when you go to Sierra Leone, for example, mm -hmm. is they are not at all concerned about the size of the church. What they're concerned about is what is the church doing? So a small church, they, they, they have three different size churches, rabbit churches, lion churches, and elephant churches. <laughs> and the, the trick is that elephant churches are like elephants. They reproduce very slowly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rabbit churches are like rabbits. They yeah. reproduce very fast. They're right. small. They're agile. Right. And the trick is they want to maintain, as the church grows, they want to maintain what they call rabbit DNA. Mm -hmm. So there are elephant churches in Sierra Leone that have rabbit DNA. They are fast reproducing. They typically reproduce by, by founding other churches right. rather than bringing more people in. Right. But, you know, their metric that they use for determining what, how the churches are doing has got nothing to do with what we think of in terms of attendance or size it has to do with how many new churches are planted, how many new discovery groups are there, how much, how much disciple-making is going on. That's what they're looking at. That's what they're measuring, not how many people are showing up on an average Sunday. Right. Well, I'd like to think a little more about, about this whole matter from a kind of a metaphysical perspective. So when I think about, you know, when I talk about metaphysics, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, but sometimes people who hear that word 
uh, more or less kind of go into mysticism mode. You know, they think metaphysics... They, they just say, you're a Thomist, and they shut the podcast off. At well, that. I mean, I, I wish they would be... I wish they knew enough to even say that. I, I think Actually, what, most of them probably go to, you're a new ager. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So what, I, what I'm getting at is that uh, when I think about metaphysics, I th I'm thinking about what's ultimately real. Yeah. So even uh, people who say, I don't believe in metaphysics, have a metaphysic. Yeah. Their metaphysic is zero. Yeah. Their metaphysic is that we live in a structureless, meaningless thing. And that the only thing that provides structure is the human will. So it's through our organization, you know, our organizations, our capacity to sort of get people to do what we want, all these different things. Uh, are what make the difference. The universe or the, the reality is like Plato uh, or like Silly Putty, and it bears our image that we, that we stamp on it. But uh, if that's not the case, if there is a kind of sort of inner uh, structure to reality, what is it and, and, and what ought we to have in mind when we think about it? Now, here's the paradox. Uh, you know, medieval people would talk about, uh, and the ancients would talk about, man as a microcosm. Yeah. So there's a sense in which we, uh, human beings, men and women, are in some way a miniature of the cosmos. So there's a, there's a macrocosm and there's a microcosm. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, one of the things I think we can make of that is that in some sense... Human beings really are central to the cosmos. Now, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, our tendency as modern human beings to sort of impress upon sort of this dull and formless stuff that surrounds us, our will. That's not what I want to talk about. What I'm talking about is something, uh, I think, more significant. Now, we think about, as Christians, the idea, uh, the, uh, the, the truth that we are the image of God. So we're the image of God. So in some sense, uh, we uh, resemble God. Now, sin, you know, as we think about this from a Christian, in a Christian framework, sin, sin has in some sense marred the image or, uh, you know, uh, made it comical or, or monstrous. Nevertheless, there's still a kind of resemblance. You can say, okay, even though you're not living up to what you're called to be, there is something there that is, you know, something that reflects God. Now, man is the microcosm, kind of takes that and flips it. And so what we're looking at uh, with man, the microcosm, is somehow as the universe itself ref reflects uh, and expresses the attributes and powers of God, in some sense, because we are made in God's image, we as well are kind of a reflection of the attributes and powers of the cosmos. So think about it this way. You know, one, one crude way to think about it is to say, okay, when we think about the four elements, you know, from the old perspective, you know, air, water, fire, uh, and uh, earth, human beings... Uh, when we're living, possess all those things. I'm, I'm warm, fire, liquid, saliva, blood, water. Beer. 
That's how we re- replenish the water supply. <laughs> right. But then the, the earth, of course, is our physical physicality. And then air, we've, if we stop breathing, we're dead. So all of those things are present in us. So this larger reality, all of the elements find them, their, their place in us. But that could be said of a beaver. That could be said of lots of other creatures. What makes us uh, so different? Lagos, reason, the image of God. There's something more that we possess that no other creature possesses that makes us the microcosm. There's a sense in which when reason orders our lives in the same way that, the, that reason orders the cosmos, we are in the microcosm. Well, and this is the exact thing that gets flipped with the modern world and postmodern world is that the universe is a microcosm of us. Yeah, right. right? And this is what I think you're talking about. The, the scale, when the scale gets flipped and the theology gets flipped, then, then it becomes it becomes dehumanizing right. at the end. I mean, Nietzsche has this brilliant point uh, when he, after he talks about the death of God and his, in, in, you know, thus spoke Zarathustra, um, you have this sense, God is dead and we've killed him. It keeps on right. going. The, the old gods will revive. We don't really see at the end. At the end, at the end of it, he eventually says, uh, man will die too. Yes. Um, the human being will die. Um, and so, so what ends up happening here is that very thing. Is so, so we we become the macro, and everything else becomes the micro. That's what is really the modern world leading into the postmodern is the flip. One, right. Once once you make those shifts, we've talked about them all the time, and even if we all agree on the same way it comes about, something shifts mm-hmm. in which God and all things related to God flips to the human being and all things related to the human. Mm-hmm. And when that ends up taking on the scope it does is it's what you're talking about. Things are not really... What, what happens is the human almost, as um, Michael Gillespie says, takes on the divine attributes um, in a perverse way. So the human becomes all-powerful, all-meaningful, all-determinative of all reality and all centrality. And so things are not... The human starts to do things not on the human scale mm. right. as a microcosm, but as the measure of all things. Right. And so when Prometheus right. basically makes its pronouncement, it, it's doing so as if it's almost the, the, the classical view of God. Right. But Cre- creating human. something out of nothing. And, yeah, and right. so what you have in your mega churches is a bunch of uh, demiurges, right. <laughs> if you will, yeah. that yeah. Are, each, are each their own God. You better define demiurge. <laughs> yeah, demiurge is the one who gives all meaning, shape, and form to the whole of creation. Little uh, God. Basically, um, you know, the God. <laughs> no, no, I was about to say something. No, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I, was gonna when, say when, the God of, I was going to say the God of William Craig, but I don't know. <laughs> Play, Plato's uh, uh, intelligent designer. Uh, Caleb, can you cut that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. We, 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 we believe that, well, you know, that's a whole subject for another yeah, show, yeah, but I, another, I know I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah now, it, another thing that needs to be said here is that the medieval and renaissance concept of man as a microcosm implied that there was a givenness about the universe. That's right, and that there are limits. And the key thing here is that, okay, well, how is man a microcosm? You talked about the four elements, but let's go beyond that. God and the angels are rational. Mm -hmm. They are spiritual. Mm -hmm. 
they are there are uh, they are moral. Mm-hmm. They are eternal. Mm-hmm. Beavers, which you mentioned before, right. are physical. Mm-hmm. They are sensual. Mm-hmm. They have senses. Right. Uh, they are mortal. Right. They are temporal. Right. Humanity is all of the above. Yeah, we're we're this uh, mm-hmm. remarkably amphibious creature. Right. To quote. Yeah. Lewis. Yeah. As uh, what it, what uh, Stanley Yaki. I don't know if you remember him from years ago. It was Benedictine. Astrophysicist and theologian, but he wrote a little book. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Him. Remember, remember yeah. the book he wrote? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's some, something about in between uh, angels and uh, oh apes. <laughs> yeah, uh, but right in between yeah, angel yeah. and neither na- neither angel nor ape. And he was critiquing both Descartes and Darwin at that point. I remember his book, The Science of Origins and the Origins of Science. Science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but it was that, that same exact point, Glenn. Glenn is making. But one of the things to keep in mind, and I think we, we can, it, it, this is crucial. Um, what what shifts from classic Christian vision of things is the notion that this is to be understood in a way that is by, by analogy. The human right. is a microcosm. Uh, of course, uh, closer to, to the whole structure of the universe as it's ordered to God. Um, but the whole, whole of creation is analogous to the creator. It's not the same as the creator. Um, one way of putting it is this way. All creation is like God, but God is not like anything in creation. And, and I think that, that is the way the classic Christian vision understood this. This is why the visible can be open to and manifest the invisible attributes of God. Because the creation is enough, it, it has the, the glory of God communicated to it. It's declared good. Um, but it is not goodness itself. It participates in that goodness as a creaturely gift. And so by doing that, it, as, you know, it, it has the perfections of God to be able to manifest in its goodness the infinite goodness, but not fully um, encapsulate it, control it, contain it. What, you know, what I'd like to do at this point, Tom, is I'd like to sort of bring this, because mm-hmm. we're getting close to the end here, I'd like to bring this to something I think is really important to keep in mind at our time. Yeah. And what, what took me this direction initially was this whole matter of how uh, size relates to servility uh, and tyranny. Yeah. So tyrannies, um, and this is what one of the things that Leopold Kor gets into in his book, uh, The Breakdown of Nations, uh, tyrannies that are small yeah. are almost kind of comic. Yeah. Do you remember, you remember uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yep. Yep. You know, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know, they, they, they get into the car and they, and they go to this little German, you know, kingdom where they've got the child catcher and they've got all these sort of ridiculous but it's maniacal people <laughs> who uh, dislike children and, 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 and want to keep them out of, you know, you know sight and they even want to get rid of them entirely. And, and so, but the, but the thing about it is, is that this is a tiny place. And if you just travel 20 miles in any direction, you're out of it. The problem with modern states, because they're so large, so uh, you, you know, they're, they're ubiquitous, you can't get away from these things, uh, they surround you and there is no escape. And what does that do to the human spirit? In order for a human being to have thumos, the way Aristotle tells us, uh, 
you know, a person needs to have thumos if he's going to be a citizen, someone worthy of our regard. Uh, he can't be so overmatched so as to make him servile. So let me, let me read a couple of things here from, uh, from Kor's book. And uh, I think uh, these will provide us with plenty of material to reflect on as we conclude here. But um, this is uh, talking about scale, of course, again. And he says, for large-scale tyranny becomes, only, uh, becomes not only respectable and practically irremovable because of the impressive physical force it is able to muster in its defense, it becomes doubly so by breeding at a critical magnitude in the people uh, the appropriate philosophy of submission. In previous applications of the power of size theory and social misery, we have found that a criminal mental climate is not a cause but consequence of the mass uh, commission of crime and the aggressive state of mind not cause but consequence of the acquisition of aggressive power. For the same reason, it is not submissive, disp uh, it is not submissive disposition that leads to the misery of tyranny, but tyrannical power growing in proportion to the size of the community that leads at a critical magnitude to the uh, uh, condoning spirit of submission. Hmm. Submissiveness is thus not a human quality that could be explained to a significant extent as a result of upbringing, tradition, national character, or the mode of production. Like most other social attitudes, it is the adaptive reflex reaction with which man responds to power. Its degree varies directly with the degree of power, just as its opposite reaction, the assertion of freedom, varies inversely with it. Where there is power, there is submission, and where there is no submission, there is no power. This is why, historically, the seemingly most freedom-loving peoples have accepted tyranny as submissively as the seemingly most submissive ones or why it is safe to say that even Americans would submit if our federal structure permitted the accumulation of the necessary volume of governmental power. For as young Boswell confided so touchingly in his London journal, quote, when the mind knows it cannot help itself by struggling, it quietly and patiently submits to whatever load is laid upon it. Hmm. This was written in the 1950s, by the way. But I think this reflects our situation today. Yeah. Shut up and put on a mask. Shut up. Mm -hmm. Just close the business down. It doesn't need to make sense. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't need to make sense to you. Who are you that your reason should stand in the way of the will of the state? You know, th this has come up before, but currently there are, well, as of 2019, the federal regulations were 20 were excuse me 72,000 pages long All right um, in 2011 I think it was a book came out called three felonies a day right. which said that the average person in America commits three felonies a day without knowing it now the total page, number of pages of federal regulations is down by 25,000 right um, it was 97,000 when Obama left office um, I think we've I've quoted those numbers before, but the point is that that level of intrusive regulation has already happened, and he's exactly right. People are just sort of rolling over and playing dead. Yeah, and you, you can't have it otherwise. For something to be 
very large, there has to be standardization. There has to be a lot of bureaucratization. There has to be a lot of con uh, conformity for very large uh, monolithic things to do what they do. Right. And the genius of the, the Constitution is originally set up key phrase, as originally set up, is that it allowed for autonomy at the level of the states, but uniformity at the level of the country in those matters where it was necessary. Mm -hmm. The Tenth Amendment is the most routinely ignored amendment in the entire Constitution. The Tenth Amendment says that any powers that are not specifically granted to the federal right. government are the, are, belong to either the state or the individual. Right. And that's been completely ignored. Right. And the net result is standardization, one-size-fits-none policies, right. things like that. Now, for me, you know, early on in my life, I realized I didn't want to be a part of something bureaucratic in nature at all. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I guess partly it had to do with my, my sort of where, how I, you know, where I found myself mm -hmm. in kind of the nature or sort of the course of my life. You know, I was a ward of the state. Um, I was subject to the, to the poking and the prodding and the questioning of people with uh, clipboards and white, you know, coats uh, who were there, you know, for my best, uh, you know, in, in my best interest. You know, like the song Mrs. Robinson, you know, you know the, 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 the idea that, you know, these people just really want to help you, Mrs. Robinson, you know. Uh, but I had such a kind of a visceral gut level kind of distaste for that, poking and prodding and stuff like that. What I didn't want anything to do, to do is, with it. What you need to do is leave uh, Mrs. Robinson and go to uh, Dear Kindly Sergeant Krupke or whatever it was called from West Side Story. That's your life. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty much and, and by the way, I, I would much rather deal with a cop <laughs> than a psychologist anytime. Because at least with a cop, it's just honest. Do what, you're, do what you're told, don't do what you're not supposed to do, and I'll leave you alone. Yeah. That's not what a psychologist <laughs> wants to do. Seriously, look up the song, Sergeant Oh, I know, I, know the, I know the song. I, I'm familiar with West Side Story. I like it. Yeah. But the idea is that, that there's this sort of meddlesome goodness, you know, this sort of intrusiveness into your life when, when people want to fix you. But beyond that, I found myself as just a kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, object on a kind of conveyor belt of human services in these large and personal institutions. And uh, whether we're talking about schools or mental hospitals or social service agencies, they all were, you know, had the same kind of uh, very dour, depressing floor tiles, ceiling tiles, you know, sort of fluorescent lights. And, and they've even gotten worse. I mean, they're, they're really just a, a con, you know, a continuous belt on which you, you kind of ride it out, you go out for a little while, and then you ride it right back in. Right. And it's one big... And, and then I went to work for State Street Bank, which was an investment bank uh, in the Boston area. <laughs> and I worked there during my college years, you know, working my way through school. And I said, that's it. <laughs> I will never work for another corporation the rest of my life. And I haven't. I've kept that promise. And, uh, you know, but what kind of sort of is at work is this visceral kind of repugnance. It's reason why I didn't get involved with, you know, sort of mega churches, why I've always found mega churches repellent. Um, what I'm looking for, and, I'm, and this is very, you know, sort of I'm, I'm talking about me here. What I'm looking for 
is human human things yeah. where people matter yeah. with their quirks and their idiosyncrasies and their histories and you don't you don't have any of that stuff when everything is standardized, bureaucratized, controlled. Well, and I think this has been a, you know, a strange attraction of, of, of a lot of, of Christians with a similar concern. Um, I mean, I think att- attractiveness to a lot of what the Romantics were up to as well is that a very connectedness to creation, mm-hmm. nature, agriculture, your hands in the dirt, and, and real genuine community um, that didn't become the Tower of Babel, right. um, but, but really fostered. And I mean, I think this is what, you know, I mean, the Christian community is supposed to be um, very connected to the created and moral order, redeemed in Christ. And I think there's something central to that um, that would, that keeps us connected to the enchanted rather than disenchantment that comes with um, modernity, post-modernity, but also the swelling. Yeah, right. Right now, we're watching uh, Governor Led- Ned Lamont here in Connecticut talk about the state of the COVID, you know, uh, response. And you know, you know, Connecticut's got four million people or so, and there's absolutely zero nuance. There's zero sort of attention to the particulars of a of a of a, of a business, of a church, of a neighborhood. Of, a, of, a, of any kind of community. Everything is one size fits all. Yeah. This is what you're supposed to do. And, and a lot of what's going on is submission to New York, from what I hear. That's so, exactly right. Yeah. So we live in the shadow of New York, uh, and if, if it wasn't New York, it'd be Boston. <laughs> now, something that you were talking about just there is it resonated with some things I've been thinking about lately. The command that was given to Adam in Genesis... 215, I think it is, was to tend and protect the garden. Mm-hmm. Or tend and keep, it's sometimes <laughs> right. translated. But the word implies protect. Right. Mm-hmm. And what that says is two things. First of all, when you take a look at the garden, it's not just the trees and things like that. I mean, there, there's, it's described in terms of all of the resources that are present there. Mm-hmm. So tending the garden means developing its resources. Yeah. Protecting the garden means doing it in a way that's not exploitive. Yeah. So, in other words, we do have to pay attention to We have to develop, but we also have to pay attention to ecology. We have to be engaged with this sort of natural, yeah. this concern about the natural world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't develop. We have to develop, too. Yeah. We've got, you know, yeah. there, there's an interesting dynamic there in terms of the balance, which I think ties into this idea of human size, because you can't get New York without leveling a good part of the creation. Yeah. 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 It it, it, Well, it it is very much, I mean, these other shows we've done, but it's very much, I mean, New York is an exhibition of, uh, you know, the heresy of modern conceptions of what it means to be a human being. I mean, this... This kind of bringing the whole into submission through my instrumental reason to serve my purposes and my will. And, I mean, that's really what it is. And so it's this technology writ large. It's entertainment writ large. It's consumerism writ large. I mean, it's all of those things um, projected up to, to the grandest scale 
which we think is exhibiting what we, our ideals, to pull on Feuerbach, um, projected onto a city. And I think Feuerbach's exactly right there. We have divinized ourselves, and New York is kind of the, the emblem of, of yeah. that divinization. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's a good note to end on. I don't want to slam <laughs> New Yorkers, but... But well, I think I think yeah. that there is a kind of Babylon-esque character to Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, with those things in mind uh, and that cheerful thought, <laughs> we really ought to wrap it up here because we've gone a little longer than we even go most times. So, thanks a lot for listening to the to the Theology Podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye now.